Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with your co-host, the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice, and his wife, Jeannie. Michael and Jeannie share with you the wisdom of the ancient Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. They offer tools and support five days a week. They will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love. In Aramaic, Rachma. Michael is the author of Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information on Michael and Jeannie, please visit www.whyagain.com. And now your co-host, The Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. To the brightness within you and the truth that is rooted within me. Hi and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with The Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm your co-host, Jeannie Rice, along with Dr. Tim Hayes, and we welcome you to the show. Today is Wednesday, so it's our Recovery Wednesday, February the 24th, 2016. Our call-in number is 646-200-4169. Press 1, and that puts you in queue to talk to us, and we would love to hear your comments and your questions because that makes this your show. And so anybody that is calling in for the Recovery Wednesday, like Gail or Dr. Androcki or anybody, if you'll press 1 so that you pop up to the top of the switchboard, that would help. First, let's welcome Michael. Thank you, sweetie. Had to push my mute button. We are honored and delighted that you're here to join us once again to talk about the whole process of Waking up from the dream of a world of hostility and fear and coming alive as true human beings. And the basic premise of this work is that just because you've got a human-looking body doesn't mean you're human, which, you know, sometimes brings some insult up for people. What do you mean I'm not human? Of course, it all depends on your definition, but let's define a human body or a human life. Everybody kind of has an idea of what a human body looks like, but let's let's define a human life. And I don't think there are enough words or enough big enough words to define a human life, so we have an experiential definition. And I'll just invite you to remember the last time you held the newborn child and tap into that essence that is the newborn. And now you've got a definition of a human life. And it's interesting to note that in order for people to do that, they don't have to think about it. You know, if we ask you to, to um, you know, tap into a time when you did something you regret, you think back through and you come up with that. But for people who go back to that newborn experience, it's so impactful and so powerfully there and so definable without words that everybody's answer, you know, wherever on the globe, tens of tens of thousands of people, we've asked the question, how many have ever held a newborn? And everybody's answer is always some variation on the theme of love. Why is that? My offering is, it's because we all know what human life it is. It is the presence of love. So our offering is that anyone who's not 
living as the active presence of love. And this may be bad news for some people. It may shake you up a little bit. Everyone who's not functioning with the active presence of love in their minds and bodies is not human. What's taken over is an automaton of sorts, a pseudo-false self that tends to run the show. And when we're playing out of that pseudo-false self, you go back to Yeshua 2,000 years ago, and he says, in order for you to live, you've got to die, which makes no sense in the classic way of thinking of life. But if you think of it in these terms, what he's saying is, in order for you, being, to live, the non-being self has to die. The non-being self is something that's made up out of power person dynamics, and it comes about as a result of messages that are within our physiology to begin with, and then the messages bought into from the world, especially from a power person, that tell us that we're something other than love. And we literally actually form a false self, a false picture in our minds of who we think we are. And that's the self that in order for the true being to live, that's the self that has to die, that has to go. So we're here to support that happening. And we're here to support the enlivening and the awakening of the true being that each of us is so that we can all function as human beings. You go back to Yeshua 2,000 years ago, and he says, I come to bring you life and bring it more abundantly. That's what he was talking about. I come to bring you the experience. And, and the, the Greeks tra- mistranslated the whole game when they started telling you to love your neighbor because he never told anybody to do that. What he told people to do was to be the presence of love when you're with your neighbor, which incidentally means anybody that you're thinking about. Be your true human self, and you have life, and you will have life abundantly out of that. There's an interesting passage, and the reason I'm focusing on this with this recovery idea is that everybody's in recovery. Everybody is working to recover the truth of who they are from a world gone mad, a world of rage, of guilt, of fear, of sadness, of hatred, of vengeance, and or just subtle frustrations and disturbances and to recover the true self and people who have no idea that's possible tend to become addicted, find something to anesthetize the pain of the loss of their human lives. And so we're here to support people in being restored to their human lives. There's an interesting passage in Luke where Yeshua, it's kind of interesting when you really break this passage down because a scribe wants to test him, so he's got a little question for him. And in this particular passage, as you listen to it unfold or you recall it, you'll see that Yeshua knows that the man already knows how in his mind to parrot the words that are his answer. And so the question when he's asked, he, he turns it back to the man and he asks him, what do you think? What, what, what's the, what do the scriptures say? And the man replies. And then instead of saying to him, you're correct, doesn't say that. He says you spoke the truth. And then, interestingly enough, what he does is he tells the man what question his answer answers. 
and it's not the question that was asked. So the passage goes like this. The scribe stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? Again, Yeshua knows the man is a scribe. He's been writing this stuff all his life. He knows that he knows the words to parrot out of his mouth. So the man parrots back to him. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Yeshua's reply to him is not, that's right, but rather his reply is, you spoke the truth. He didn't answer the question he was asking, but he did speak a truth, and that is that where we need to be living to have a human life is as the active presence of love. So having that presence of love there, and if you go to the Aramaic translation of that particular passage, what, he, what is said is not love God, love neighbor as self, but actually what it says is you need to function as a human being, as the presence of love. When you think of a neighbor, and in Aramaic that means anybody that you think about, when you think of the creator... And then here's where the big shift takes place. In Aramaic, it then says, in order to maintain self. In order to maintain your human life, you've got to be functioning as love. So Yeshua says to the man, you spoke the truth. And then he tells him that his answer answers. He says, you spoke the truth. And then he says... Do this, and you shall live. Now, was he saying to the man, sir, excuse me, you're not alive? Yes, I see you sitting there with your mouth moving, but you're not human. You don't have a human life. Your human life is gone from you. You're not alive. I don't know if that's exactly what he was saying. And so he's saying to the man, if you function as the presence of love, when you think of neighbor, when you think of the creator, then you maintain self. And if you do this, then you will live. And guess what the biggest pain one will ever experience in their lives? The root of all pain is when they lose their human lives. And it usually happens by the age of four. Once that's lost and I just invite you to, you know, look at anybody that you know from the age of four onward, when the stress is up and the chips are down, do they function as love? Do they have a human life in the presence of that stress? Most people simply don't. There's no conscious awareness. There's no state of being there. There's just an automaton that by rote defends itself, attacks, or does whatever the myriad of events are. And that is hugely painful. When you realize that when every cell of your structure is connected to this absolutely awesome presence of love, the state one lives in when connected to that is pure ecstasy. And when the newborn is ripped off for that and loses that, the state is extreme Void, trauma, and physical pain, mental pain, emotional pain. The world reinforces that message and says, well, you know, you're not so great. You're actually, we'll we'll even tell you that maybe you're a sinner and will do its best to tear you down so that you don't experience your human life as your human life 
it reinforces the loss of that. And then it will tell you about some kind of a religious journey to get it back. But the first step to that journey is to make sure you keep proclaiming yourself a sinner. You look at the insanity of that whole game. And, and look at the word sin, and it's an archery term, and it simply means off the mark. And so to recognize that the root of that pain is what drives people to drink. The root of all addiction, as I would offer it, as I've observed it over the years, is that one has pain, oftentimes that they don't even know that they have, and when they take their first drink, they experience for the first time relief from that pain. And their mind goes, this is good. This pain has got on for so long. For the first time in how long, I'm experiencing myself as free from pain. Of course, that old song, feeling no pain. The anesthetic, you take two molecules of alcohol, take the water out, you've got ether. Of course, there's no pain or no, pardon me, experience of pain. And so what causes someone to pick up the drink, to pick up the addictive habit or substance or activity? It is that unrelenting pain that ultimately can only be filled when we reconnect to the truth of who we are and once again function as true human beings. The whole journey of this work is to come back to functioning as a true human being and living in the ecstasy of that state of being connected to source. So that's what we're here to support. And uh, Jeannie, who do we have on the line with us today? We have Dr. Tim we have Gail. Okay. Well, let's start out and say a hello to Dr. Tim. How do you be, sir? I'm doing quite well, thank you. Awesome. Anything exciting happening in your world to add to the conversation? Well, we had our um, Tuesday support group last night, and I was um, we had more than the average attendance. We had 14 people or 15 people plus me, and awesome. it was um, it was one of those loving magical time somebody did a worksheet and it was very emotional and very tearful and it went back to a very early time in life so it ties into all the things you were just saying mm. and it went into fear of not existing and wanting a parent to say I love you and so personally I had several times during the session where I had tears of gratitude for the people that gather, for their commitment to hold the space of love for each other and their commitment to work on their own work. And For me, it was a very emotional, loving evening, and I'm just grateful beyond words for the people who choose to participate in those groups. And we watched the uh, first hour of the older version of codependence to interdependence. A younger Dr. Michael Rice was lecturing. Uh-huh. And uh, we had several people comment that that's their favorite lecture. And 
So it really stirred things up for people. We had a couple newbies in the group, so it was interesting to get their response and how they were moved by the process. And I'm just um, thrilled to be on the team, filled with gratitude. Well, we're, we're thrilled to have you here and filled with gratitude for you in our lives, for sure. And so just, just for clarity's sake for me, so people are saying they'd like to the old version of codependence better than the new one? I don't know that that was being said. They were just referring to um, wanting to learn more about the power person dynamic, and um, so I'm I'm not sure. I like the older one better, not so much because the material is different, but because you had a better energy. You were flowing more that night. The newer one has more uh, some different pieces and dynamics that have come through about all the complications internally when I'm holding two or three or four different images of myself and somebody else, and they're holding two or three or four images of themselves and somebody else. And then there's the power person image. and So I'm not sure that gets drawn out quite as well in this older version, but you're presentation was more of a flow and you had that good energy about you and so it was just a delightful delightful evening and um i am i'm blessed beyond words to have those people choose to come each tuesday and participate and and use the tools and the testimonials that they have about how it's changing their life for the better are are gratifying as well I hear you loud and clear, and you know I I actually didn't know the uh, the relationship substitution piece, which is the piece I think you're talking about that's in the second video that wasn't in the first. Right. Uh, I didn't I didn't have that understanding back when I first uh, first did that codependence video, and then that was a new piece that comes in where uh, the relationship substitution uh, occurs as the power person goal is triggered. So. So yeah, that is a new piece to the puzzle, and I think such it's one that um, catches just about everybody's breath because anybody who's ever had a relationship uh, end or at least change form dramatically uh, usually relates to exactly how that happened and when it happened. I mean, so many people go right back. Oh God, I remember exactly the words that were said. I exactly the moment when you know, the honeymoon was over, and now I understand why it happened. And to me, that piece of understanding is what what holds, what, what, what really opens the space to go, ah, and now I know what to do about it, as opposed to allowing that dynamic to, uh, to occur again. So that's a cool piece to the puzzle. Awesome. Well, thank you for that input. Let's check with Gail and see what Gail has to say today. What's on Gail's mind? Gail is here with us in uh, in Laws of Living, so I assume she's down there on the phone. And uh, we've been covering so much territory in this last uh, 20 days or so, Gail. Uh, what's on your mind? I appreciated what you had to say about recovery and the definition of recovery and what we're trying to get back. I had asked that in the past at um, meetings and to sponsors and wasn't given quite 
the explanation of what we're getting back to and my thoughts at that time and and were um and they they have changed um about ten minutes ago was um I said, what are we trying to get back? I never had anything that I wanted back, you know just the the abuse and um I thought that recovery was about being able to live without the substance and, and of course, connecting to God, but I didn't feel like I ever had that connection. So it wasn't about getting something back until I heard you talk about, you know, just rewording that. I know you, I've heard you say that over and over again, but linking that with recovery um, and that word um, was a huge breakthrough for me just now. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, I actually, that that, uh, thought came from someone who, when I mentioned them we were doing Recovery Wednesdays, were like, well, you know, what's what's that whole recovery thing all about anyway? So the the beauty of of what I get to participate in by listening to thousands of people's questions opens a space for, you know, just like in this morning's class, that that was a really nice shift, major shift in the Laws of Living piece, the work uh, that came out of the class interaction and discussion. So it's it's always giving its gifts. And someone had said, you know, well, a recovery, you know, what do I want to recover from back then? It's like, no, it's really, you want to bring back your human life. And, and you know, once one's living as a human being, there is such delight and joy that one wouldn't want to even mar their experience with the substance that weakens and toxifies the way that uh, drugs and alcohol do. It's like, ooh, who would even want it? I remember working with a woman several several years ago who uh, she had been, her her husband was a businessman and she was the housewife who prepared the meals and, you know, every night, seven nights a week because he worked seven days a week, uh, they'd have, you know, two or three, four drinks before dinner and a bottle of wine with dinner, two, three, four drinks after dinner. Never refer to themselves as alcoholics, but when she started doing this work, she realized alcohol wasn't working for her, so she just stopped drinking altogether. And it was about maybe five years later that she shared with me that she went to a party and, and someone offered her a drink and she, you know, hadn't thought about drinking in years and said, yeah, sure, I'll have one. And, and, and she said that she no more than got the sip of it was a whiskey or something like that. She no more than got that past her lips and it felt like razor blades or kidneys. She could feel the impact in her tissue structure of that toxic substance. And of course, if one is, has a lot of pain and be, instead of being experienced as the toxic substance as it is, people fear it, feel it as covering up the pain. Oh, I feel better. This is good stuff. Uh, when, there's no longer a need for the anesthetic, then the toxic substance is just like abhorrent to people. Agreed. Agreed. And I I appreciate... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I appreciate what you also brought up about the pain. Um, Part of my experience... In terms of being the driver? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, and then also the part about, I think I'm going to tell housemates to, <laughs> I'm being distracted. Actually saying that, they probably already heard it. Hey guys. 
still with us? We lost you, Gail. Okay, I'm back. Oh, all right, good. Um, <laughs> I lost you there I was, for a second. Yeah, I, I put it on mute, so you wouldn't hear what I was okay. telling me. <laughs> but anyway, the the part about pain and, and um, when we were first talking about that, the first six days that we were talking about recovery, you had changed my my wording into I kept saying I'm uncomfortable in my own skin, and you kept saying right. it's unresolved pain, and, and and linking that to being unresolved uh, um, and not knowing about it about the pain and yes. just being driven to anesthetize it without having conscious awareness of, of that pain. That describes it perfectly for me as well. I didn't realize how much pain I was in until I heard somebody else talk about the pain that they had before they took that first drink. And that was right. feeling like I was on the outside looking in, never feeling comfortable in my own skin, not being able to connect to others. And um, that described me perfectly. And then they talked about their experience with their first drink and what happened for them. And it happened for me as well is that the angels parted. I mean, I'm sorry, the clouds parted and the angels sang. Was finally able to get that relief or that peace that I'd been seeking. And then from there, it was all about finding the right combinations of substances, the right mix in order to get to that place. Right. Well, and sometimes people don't relate to that. Well, how could you have unconscious pain? Of course, if you've got pain, you know about it. And I use an easy example of, uh, remember the last time you put a wool sweater on and it was itchy, and after 10 or 15 minutes, the itch totally went away. Or at least the awareness of the itch went away, because if you remember, you know, eight hours later when you took that wool sweater off, you scratched everywhere. It's like, oh, what a relief. The itch was there the whole time. And once one disconnects and you know as I'm thinking about it it ties right in what you're describing and and I think this is key to substance abuse on another level is you're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder people have a traumatic event in their lives i.e. they lose awareness of themselves as love and what follows that I mean my take is that the moment where people experience that disconnect and that loss of the physiological presence of love is a moment of the deepest and most intense pain one will ever feel and the deepest rage that anyone can imagine. And that pain and that rage will become the root of every failure, every trauma, every disease that they will ever have. And to recover that connection to source, to lose that connection, and which basically says, you know, if you look at all the classic signs of PTSD, you just described them, and virtually everybody on the planet is in PTSD because they have trouble going back and connecting to that original true self, that original presence of love. So they're going around in various states of rage and pain and puking on others and, you know, all the stuff that goes along with it. And so to really, truly remove the messages that were given by the power person, to remove the genetic implants that took place that block awareness of who we are, 
and to go back to that original connected space of love, to me, that's the whole game of recovery. That's what it's all about. And to do it, you have to forgive. You have to undo that original traumatic stress people are still reeling from. I I agree. Um, the, The other thing that I want to add to that was some of the descriptions of how people felt too in that pain. Um, one of the descriptions that I heard from circuit speakers is um, feeling like there's ground glass on the inside of the skin. And when they took that first drink, that ground glass moved out. And the other mm. description was like a, 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 a spring being tightened and tightened and tightened. And when they took that first drink, the spring was finally able to let go and have that relief of that spring one of my best descriptions of of that pain was feeling always feeling like um having to have the smoke and the mirrors and the bells and the whistles going at all time because if somebody really looked inside and saw who I was and I felt so empty mm-hmm. that um I would fall apart if they really looked. And so having to anesthetize became number one. And and it didn't matter who whoever was in the way of me becoming anesthetized had to be replaced. So oh. that correlates with what you talk you. about with being in relationship with bodies. For me, it was being in relationship with people that had positions, and I always had the replacement. And so, you know, in line. So right. that goes that goes with that pain and covering up the pain and and needing to have the freedom to anesthetize. Well, I think that ties in too. You know, as you say, you go the next person's always just waiting there in line. You've got them on hold uh, for <laughs> when that person defaults. And so many people live in a world. I've, I've heard this so many hundreds maybe more than hundreds of times over the years of if they really knew who I was, they would totally reject me and wouldn't want to ever see me again. And that is such a common belief in people's minds. Part of that loss of being, that loss of the true self. That, uh, and then buying in and, and, and literally making up a self out of the particularly the messages that come from the power person, from the world as well, but particularly from the power person who has more control over my life than, than I do, and I perceive the situation as survival, that just opens the veil to let those messages in, to just take them in, and, and it formulates or forms literally uh, uh, an image coagulates in the mind of a body that I think that I am made up of all those false statements and those false beliefs about self. And when that coagulates and surfaces in my mind as a picture of who I am as a body, then I, if I give up my identity as love where I started and fall into identification with that, and that's the story of the fall of man, when I fall into identification with that, I think that what I need are all the, the the dynamics of that insane set of messages that I'm something other than love 
that came from my culture, my power person, and my genetics. And it is the forgiveness of those messages that allows the self that needs to die, the non-being self, to collapse so that the true self can come forward into full flower and full existence. And in that state, everything changes. Everything's different. I agree. I agree again. One of the things that I wanted to add, Scott Sober this time around, it felt like the mast had broken. And because it didn't fit anymore because it was broken, I had to take it off and felt very naked and exposed. And one of the things that Jeannie did in her, her healing the whole woman was that she had the masks for us to put on. And right. talked about what it was like with the mask on and what it was like taking the mask off. That was very powerful for me as well. And so, yeah, I agree with that whole mask and that other persona and and appreciating the 12 steps for allowing me to get in touch with who I really am and then being able to take it deeper with the, the Aramaic forgiveness process as well. Cool. Well, I appreciate more and more every time, you know, and and the pieces that you put into the intensive and such and how it parallels, and it just reinforces the whole first century Aramaic understanding, which, uh, you know, I I really appreciated getting to to realize that the original 12 steps started out as a first century study group uh, studying Christian principles from way back when and how that became part of the, uh, the, the whole process of the traditions and the steps was powerful. And Jeannie tells me that Terry Bowling's on the line. Let's say hello to Terry. Hey there, young man. How hey, you Michael. Doing? I'm doing Welcome. well. How are you doing? Thank you. I am rocking. We're just rolling right along here. Yeah, I bet. It's a lot of activity going on in it. It is. A lot of action. Yeah, a lot of action. Going on. This is my, I was able to dial into the show here and pick up uh, uh, into kind of midway uh, uh, this this conversation you have, Gail, and uh, uh, I find it very interesting, and it's something that um, I've looked at from a couple of different perspectives, and uh, wanted to throw something out there for some feedback up to it. Sure. Okay, so uh, I believe that I experienced, like I remember my first conscious moment when I was like two and a half or something like that. And uh, that was through some coincidences and research and family pictures and stuff. And it was like, oh, wow, it opened up to to my first conscious moment. And then there was a moment when I was about six when um, an event occurred that was uh, like a PTSD event. And um, I I opened up or... or, uh, uh, moved into kind of what would uh, be classified as a sociopathic um, uh, observation or experience of life where, where like, my feelings and emotions were completely shut down. And I think that's separate from uh, losing my connection with being. I think I lost the connection with being through some other things that went on in that two to six year period, and I don't know for sure that's just my theory and throwing it out there, but I distinctly remember the uh, separation from the feelings and, and being uh, 
uh, lifted or, or placed or moving into, be a better word, uh, this experience of like zero emotion, where I was just a complete right. observer, where the, where the emotional uh, faculties had shut down. <clears throat> and yep. after, that, after that yeah, so I wasn't feeling anything, but I was hyper aware of everything, every, and I still Protection. remember it. It's like I, yeah, I can see the the hairs on the face of my brothers and the furniture and the place. I mean, I can, I can if there was like total recall of what was going on during that event. Okay, right. And then as I move forward through my uh, my form, formative years from six to 17, then um, I would uh, uh, um, uh, I would uh, behave sociopathically, okay? Like I would do certain things that got me in a lot of trouble pretty early with authorities, and it was because I would go into that place where there was no feeling, and with, that, with the no feelings, there, there was also no judgment or no morality. That, that, seemed right. to, that I seemed to be able to access. So whatever it was that I was doing was perfectly okay because there was no consequence for me internally, if that makes sense. Right. No connection. And, um, and, and, yeah. And let, me, let me just ask a question at this point then. And if, if you were to look at those behaviors and how they took place in my offering would be one of the reasons why there was no internal consequence is because you were replicating what you saw from your power person, and you know, especially that's, that's when right. stressed, I, I had taken a, taken on that personal code, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. So, for those who perhaps aren't familiar with the whole discussion about the power person, power person is the person who has more power over your life at some stage of your life than you do, and it's perceived as survival. And once one goes through that dynamic and the power person, by definition, is not functioning as love, then what happens is one develops uh, a, a set of behaviors based on their power person dynamic. And when that occurs, there are only three possible, and I think the one you're referring to is the third uh, elevation. And that is the first one is when there's no stress, one will do whatever they get to get along with their power person. When stress starts to build, they'll do whatever they did to resist and survive with their power person. And when they become ultra-stressed, then they'll do whatever their power person did to them that they hated the most. And basically, that's what runs the world. And so, if and and so, I don't have to know anything about your power person, Terry, just to listen to your description of what you would do. And that is to know that your power person had no conscience about what he did. There was no internal consequence. And it didn't matter whatever he felt like doing, he would do. And uh, probably in the realm of uh, viciousness, when you speak of that, uh, how that impacted you and left you in post-traumatic stress. Yeah, viciousness and callousness. And it's like with no remorse and that kind of stuff. And um no feeling. To further yeah, no feeling. And so and to further to tie that into the topic of uh, the addiction and uh, recovery was that what happened with certain substances when I got into my later teen years and I started experimenting in my early teen years, is that it opened me up feeling again 
So it wasn't tr- not feeling. It was the opposite. Because I hear people all the time talking about, oh, I didn't want to feel, so I used drugs and stuff to, to not feel. But I used them to feel. I felt alive and connected. And, and it was described in a variety of religious experiences by William James. And he talks about the addict, the alcoholic, in one of his chapters there, to where he thought that, the, and he used the word soul of the, of the uh, addict was uh, was uh, a certain way. And if these events to tr- trigger certain things, and that was his understanding. And, it, and, and what, we're, what we're touching on here really makes more sense for me. It's not that there was some, you know, higher evolved soul, but certain events had occurred that set this dynamic up. And then it says, but what the, what he, in the words that James used was that the soul thought it had found uh, reconnection with source. And, yes. and through the drugs the and alcohol, but, but it found, right. yeah, the high, so the feelings are back and the goodness and all that was good in the world. And I embraced that lifestyle to the end. Because that was God, you know, that was my God connection, and and it, what it, and the way that James further describes it though is that the the addict finds out that that's a pseudo connection, and and many times yeah. it's to you know it's to the to the end. So that that was just a little bit different spin on that, in that it opened me up to these feelings and stuff, which my I interpreted as uh, blissful and pleasant, and they were to a degree. Until you know you cross that line, and they're not a, they're not a permanent long term solution. They were just a temporary pseudo solution. Well, I would I would ask just for clarification, if one is in a state of post traumatic stress disorder, extreme pain, then would the disappearance of that feeling, i.e., as it's anesthetized and the mind goes into this state of high, and basically the brain, when it's in the process of dying, being cut off from oxygen, it goes into a high. Would that absence of pain be interpreted as bliss, the anesthetizing of that pain, and then the corresponding you know, dynamic, the physiological dynamic that's happening with the brain when it's starting to check out feels like a high, would that, rather than actually going to feeling, would that be like this is a great substitute because a minute ago I couldn't stand anything, and now, oh, man, this feels good because I don't feel any pain. Just wondering uh, with your recall of that. Well, I think that the key word that I heard you say earlier in, in this in this whole question that you're posing is, the unconscious pain. The pain right. had been had become unconscious, so I was yes. not conscious of the pain. So, in, in, in taking that into consideration, the answer would be yes. And that's only that's only after lots and lots of work and dialogue and, and uh, conversations and experiences to be able to come to a place to see that. Because you know, prior to this conversation, I couldn't put that together. Right. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, yeah the last good. name Thank feels you. pretty good. Last name's like But then, of course, well, the lack of pain feels pretty good, but then a brain that's going through slow suicide doesn't reason very well or make very many good choices, so it tends to lead to more pain. No. <laughs> you know, the, the lack of right. pain tends exactly. to lead to more because there's no sense or sensibility there in the, in the mind that's, uh, or the brain 
that literally, and, and what's happening, you know, the reason why people get high uh, is that blood cells coagulate and, and can't get through the capillaries to the brain, and the brain starts to check out. It's suffering from a lack of oxygen and nutrition, and uh, it goes into this uh, kind of a pseudo or false euphoria that um, that really is a signal that it's checking out. It's, it's slow brain. It's suicide. over. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. 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 That's good. That's good stuff. I'm feeling uh, actually feeling a little bit of a a release uh, in my uh, structure here, uh, and it's like a little bit of a euphoria that's coming up from uh, whatever. Um, and whatever I've been internally suppressing that with before through this through this dialogue. Thank you. Awesome, that's cool. And you know, I I think that you know what, one of the things that I've observed that, that, that looks to me like the brain does is that it it needs to be in a state of homeostasis and balance all the time. And so, if I elevate my pain level and there's nothing I can do about it, what will happen is my brain will put out endorphins and keflins to anesthetize my pain. And so I'll go from, let's imagine we've got a zero line and I have five units of pain. I have no way to abate or to get rid of that pain, so my brain adjusts so that that five units looks normal. So I go from a baseline of zero and five looks normal, then I experience more pain and it takes me up to a 10. I have no way to deal with or get rid of that pain, and I experience that pain for a while, but then my brain says, well, we got to get back to normal here, so it makes 10 normal, makes 20 normal, makes 50. So, so here's somebody with these huge quantities of pain, and the brain is drugging itself to anesthetize that to try to achieve some kind of a balance and normal state. So if 50 becomes normal, and then I do a piece of work that knocks out 10 units of pain, like, oh, I got that one. I can free myself for that one, which is what I hear you just describing, knocks out 10 units of pain. The anesthetic, the endorphins and keflins that were keeping that pain in solution so that I couldn't feel it, all of a sudden they're freed up and I'm high because those endorphins that were a moment ago anesthetizing pain, when I release that chunk of pain, when I literally remove that from my structure, then the uh, the internally produced drugs uh, don't have anything to anesthetize and they feel like a high. And then the brain will adjust, adjust and you know take me back to where 40 is normal. And ultimately doing the work and the, the process of forgiveness, letting go of those layers, is to get back to that original baseline where being connected to the active presence of love is normal and that state of bliss is where we live, 24-7-365. And that's why it takes all the steps to do the work to keep moving through it, and in particular, of course, being able to collapse the belief that it's about something outside and actually forgive, actually get into the internal uh, part of the structure and remove what never belonged. The removal process being the forgiveness, as opposed to, you know, where most people's focus is that forgiveness is about letting themselves or somebody else off the hook. You know, we strongly urge never forgive yourself, never let anybody off the hook. But if you're in pain, apply forgiveness to remove your pain. 
And when you do that, the tendency is to get a little high from it because of the, the drugs, the internal drugs that it frees up. The body over time reabsorbs that and takes you back down to normal until you get back to your baseline. Does that make sense, fit with your experience? That's a beautiful description of it. That makes perfect sense. And, you know, I, I always go back, Terry, and just to share this with people, too, you know, after you've been at Heartland for two years and you've been doing five words each day for two years, you know, what created the experience of the day you picked up the phone, you were at a, a motel, you were driving from Heartland to Asheville, and you stopped and spent the night, you called into the show that morning, and you shared with us that for the first time in your life, every cell in your body was filled with the presence of love. The result of forgiveness on a consistent, persistent basis, the result of using that tool of forgiveness to drop in and remove the pain, drop in and remove the pain, drop in and remove the pain. And the reason why the work has to go on and be done on a daily basis, on a long-term daily basis, is that, you know, two years, five years, ten years of doing that is just scratching the surface of a thousand generations of who knows what we've carried into this life. You know, when you realize if you if you do the numbers and you recognize, you know, the Aramaic geneticist Yeshua who says, you know, the sins of the fathers will be passed to three and four generations. He's not talking anything about theology or religion. He's saying and the, the word sin in Aramaic is an archery term that means off the mark. He's saying the energies that are off the mark, the dramas, the traumas, the pains of the generations are passed on through the genes from generation to generation. And so if you look at the fact that in if you do the math in just 30 generations, you're a little better than just about 1.7 billion people. There's a lot of work to be done. And so the ongoing canceling of the goal that collapses and allow one to drop into the next deeper level, the next deeper level of the genes, until that whole structure is cleared out, and what governs the system is the conscious active presence of love as it was designed to happen from the beginning and being freed from the trauma of the generations. It's a, it's a huge piece of work, but, oh, man, there's nothing like it. Gail, any thoughts for you on the conversation at this point? I always have a thought. <laughs> Yeah, go for it. Um, I appreciate, Terry, um, and want to to validate your experience, and thank you for that added piece of you wanted to feel. And and, and I so much appreciate what you had to say, Michael, too, about the difference of feelings, you know, feeling bad and being in unconscious pain versus putting something in your body and starting to feel a little bit better is going to feel like bliss and joy. So I appreciated that piece of information and a lot because that was my experience as well. Just didn't um, articulate it that way, but I get it. I understand it. And um, that has been my experience too. The other thing that I wanted to add uh, are um, I heard uh, Terry say the word you had to be very visual and I can remember very Excellent. specific events you know from the way his brothers looked 
to, you know, the arrangement of the furniture. I think that's what I heard him say. Um, and, and we had talked about being very vigil in the connection to attention deficit disorder as well yesterday during the laws of living. And I, I could see how I think you're meaning vigilant, vigilant. Yeah, there you Is go. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Vigilant. Yeah, got it. Got to be aware of everything in the environment to stay safe after that uh, original PTSD Absolutely. event. Yeah. And I could see where ADD or ADHD would go into um, behavioral disorders and would also turn into PTSD or be a combination of all of that as well. Yeah, when physical, so, mental, so, emotional abuse follows the loss of being, it just it's like a downward spiral. I agree. Any other thoughts there? Any other thoughts there for you, Terry? I'm just uh, breathing and enjoying the space that I'm in right now. Awesome, awesome. Well, we hold the space with you and. Jeannie tells me that we've got a caller, so let's see who our caller is, what they have to share. Actually, I also have a message. And it's from Julie, and she's... Uh, Michael. Okay. <laughs> when his phone's not muted, it echoes back. Okay, so I got a text message from Julie, who was just at the, the nine day that we just finished, and she said, wow... Please tell Michael that I never quite got that piece about how I have internal drugs holding a baseline. Since I left the intensive, I've been feeling the pattern to suppress pain, trying to reestablish itself. With food, I am in limbo, reactivated to the pain of losing being. And she says, I now know what to focus my work on, so please tell Michael, Gail, and Terry thank you for me. Awesome. Oh, you have to unmute now. Okay. It came through yours. Oh, okay. And uh, so our caller, I think, is Rex. 517, you're on the air. Hi, friends. Uh, Great conversation on the idea of pain and the the whole process. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. It's been enlightening and supportive. And I was just sitting here, you know, uh, dealing with some pain myself, physical pain, and how I have approached it this time and over over years of, you know, practice is that I look for um, what the brilliance of the pain is showing me. You know, there's something there, there's a pearl. And I was just sitting here and I just remembered the book by Milton Ward, The Brilliant Function of Pain. And I, I Googled it and I think it was more for me just to remember, you know, pain is there as a part of my experience and the more I'm able to embrace it and open my mind and heart to the experience I'm having of the pain, the more I'm able to learn about what I'm hiding from myself. And I think that's kind of reinforcing pretty much what everybody was saying or you were saying, Michael, but I don't I don't know that I have actually heard you articulate it in such a way that I was able to receive it so much more deeply. So maybe that's just me, but I'm kind of hearing that echoed a little bit with the other callers that... Um, I think it's a good one if to just to identify on the on the archives that this you know you know the brilliant function of pain or something along the line that of of knowing that it's an alarm system and we've talked so much about it especially you have Michael and I just found that it's very 
is very helpful today. Maybe it's because I'm having physical pain. Uh, what I've learned with awesome. it is this piece, and that that uh, that process of endorphins. In, what was the other word you used, Michael? I'm not familiar. Endorphins with and keflins. Basically, self-produced drugs. Yep, yep. Um, how when the pain is, um, you know, it, it lessens that that feeling of euphoria. I can see how that would play a role in, you know, kind of getting attached to the pain too. I mean, it would almost be a, a catch twenty two situation where we get those release into the bloodstream, and then we get that sense of ah, kind of like alcohol or drugs or you know. Um, whatever we might use to avoid the pain or to try to dull it. In a similar way, I wonder if we get somewhat um, habitually connected to our pain so that we can have that organic endorphin release. Is that also a part of what you're saying? I believe it is, yes. And, you know, the, uh, in terms of the, uh, the the function of pain, you've, you've heard me say it before, by the tongue-in-cheek line I just cut deliver as a tongue-in-cheek line, but really I'm totally, completely, 100% serious is what is the brilliant function of pain? It makes your ears grow. It gets your attention. And so I would suspect, you know, having articulated most of what we, uh, we've we said so far, I think, on previous occasions, and I'm sure you've been part of it, but uh, you're, you're listening with some new brain cells probably to uh, as you're doing your process around whatever you're working through at this moment, uh, I suspect that new understanding comes from uh, from the fact that pain is fulfilling its purpose. It's helping your ears to grow. Well, and I, I know we're running out of time, but briefly, I just it's, uh, it's it not happened for a long time, but my back started hurting and started getting some of those real flashes of acute pain that's quite severe. And this time, I'm accustomed to going, okay, what what kind of anger might I be hiding or what kind of rage might I be hiding? But this time it was like, okay, any anger? Not really, just sadness, just deep sadness. And just breathe, canceled goals, tapped and released, and then went about my business. And it's still there, but it's it seems like it's okay. You know, it's okay. It's yep. telling me something. I'll continue to look. So that was the other piece that I wanted to share. I appreciate it. Cool. Well, I think once we uh, once we accept it and see it for what it is, instead of treating it like an enemy, it gives us its gift, and then it moves on. If we refuse its gift, then it tends to keep knocking the door and uh, and knocking at the door until finally we say, "Well, come on in, tell me what you got to tell me." And we are down to just the last few seconds. So I'll just say thank you to everybody for the conversation. I think it's awesome and. Uh, Terry, I'm delighted that you're connecting in on another level and, uh, and standing in that space of uh, of true bliss, of the, of the real thing. And uh, Rex, thanks for that input. Uh, Gail, much appreciation. I, I love it every time you give us another piece from your uh, your uh, the big book and uh, the twelve traditions. It's uh, it's awesome. So, everybody, we are in great appreciation of each of you in supporting us and taking this work to every mind, heart, and being on the planet. Dr. Tim, your input is always awesome and support appreciated. And we'll look forward to the next time we get face-to-face. In the meantime, create the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings, everybody.